Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Mandy and Katie Surprise. with our dirty laundry. Surprise, <laughs> right? We said we weren't going to do any more episodes through the end of the year and just post reposts, but you get to hear us again. Aren't you happy? We're going to talk about <laughs> death. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a dark week for oh, lots of reasons. It has I, been. Did you ever watch the show Community that was on for a few years? Uh, I, not regularly, but oh, I know it's it so yeah. good. I love that show. And there's one of the very best episodes ever is they're playing this like role play dice game, you know, where it's like the wizard attacks. What do you do? And you roll the dice. You're like, I got a 12. I can kill the trolls or whatever. Like one of those games. Yeah. And yeah. they're, so basically they're setting it up. Like every time like they roll a dice, like it could conceivably land on any one number. And that leads to all sorts of like different features and so they have oh, like, yeah. you know that lands on a two which makes this person makes this move and then everything you know like what happens after that and no. the episode ends through what's called the darkest timeline where like <laughs> literally everything like their apartment sets on fire and like everything implodes and like everything is super awful and so i just kept thinking this week like oh my god this is the darkest timeline we are living in the darkest <laughs> timeline i won't like oh. you know people don't need to hear all of our family stuff but it just it was like the perfect conflagration of pandemic climate change gun violence like all of it came coming to a head in one week and just like god help us yeah. so that's, I know. I know. That's where I'm at. It's been a week. It's been a week. And sadly, like another thing to pile on to this dark week and the reason that we wanted to do a quick mini-sode um, was to kind of talk about the passing of Bell Hooks and yeah. pay a tribute to that and um, make sure that we didn't pass over that because she is incredibly important in the feminist movement and we will talk a lot more about her in detail when we do the feminist mm -hmm. segment which i think we decided we're going to do next so mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. that will be coming up for sure but it is just a huge tragedy and loss that she's gone um because she was she was still really young um and yeah. she contributed so much and um, we well, wanted to kind of, is that right? Do, yeah, she was 69. She's only like a couple months older than my mom. Oh my um, God. When you start yeah. to think about it in those terms are like our own age. It's just, mm -hmm. it's hard. Um, so yeah. we, what, before we found out that Bell Hooks had passed away, Mandy had texted this group of friends, <laughs> this link to an obituary from the Fayetteville Observer. Where did you find this? Oh my obituary? gosh. It's just, so just a friend of mine had posted it online and I don't think they had any personal connection either to this individual. It was just like posted as a, you must read this. I demand that you click this link because this has to be shared far and wide. And it's so like sharing obituaries of random strangers seems like just such so a weird strange until you read this particular obituary. <laughs> yes. You read it and then you're just like, oh, let me sit down 
and read this like five more I, times. I literally have row. it just open on a browser this week just to read it when I needed to laugh. Even though I knew what was coming, I I just, I have laughed so hard. It's um, an obituary for Renee Mendel Corin, and it was written by her son, right? Yes. Yeah. It looks her like it was written by her son. Name, Andy Corin. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, um, and my friend <laughs> who posted this said, and I repeated it again, like, if my obituary doesn't read like this, I don't <laughs> want one. <laughs> like, do you, don't write do you, it. If let's this just both read our favorite parts. I know there literally, we could just read this entire thing word for word and it would be amazing. I know. Why don't we just pick our two, fa- like you pick your favorite part. I'll, I'll pick my favorite oh, part. Oh gosh. Okay. Um, all right. I, this is, well, hopefully it's not the same, but then we can just okay. pick a different one if yeah, it is. Yeah, but yeah. so this is the son writing it. And he said, because she was my mother, the death of Zaftig good time gal Renee Corn at the impossible old age of 84 is newsworthy to me. And I treat it with the same respect and reverence she had for, well, nothing. A more disrespectful, trash reading, talking, and watching woman in North Carolina, Florida, or Texas was not to be found. Hers was an itinerant, much-lived life, a Yankee, Florida liberal, Jewish tough gal who bowled him in Japan, rolled him in North Carolina, and was a singularly unique parent. Um, (laughs) I just love the part where he says a more disrespectful, trash talking, reading woman (laughs) could never be found. A woman after my own heart. And then he, you know, goes in and talks about all of the stuff that she was involved in. She said, he said at one point in the late 1980s, Renee was the 11th or 12th ranked woman in cribbage in America. And while that could be a lie, it sounds great in print. She also (laughs) told us she came up with a name for Sunoco. And I choose to believe this too. Yes, Renee lied a lot. She She didn't cook. She didn't clean. She was lousy with money. Here's what she was great at, dyeing her red roots, weekly manicures, dirty jokes, pear fishing, rolling joints, and buying dirty magazines. She said she read them for the articles, but filthy free speech was really Renee's thing. (laughs) (laughs) This this is my favorite part. We thought Renee could not be killed. God knows people tried. A lot. Renee has been toying with death for decades, but always beating it and running off in her silver Chevy Nova. COVID couldn't kill Renee. Neither could pneumonia twice, infections, blood clots, bad feet, breast cancer twice, two mastectomies, two recessions, multiple bankruptcies, marriage to a philandering sergeant major, divorce in the 70s, six kids, one cesarean, a few abortions from the, in all caps, quietly famous abortionist of Spring Lake, North Carolina, or an affair with Larry King in the 60s. Renee was preceded in death by her ex-boyfriend, Larry King. I can't even get through that line. Renee was also sadly preceded in death by her beloved daughter, Kathy Sukor and Lester Trammell Webster of Kill Devil Hills, who herself was preceded in death by two marriages, a fudge shop, and one eyeball lost in a near-fatal Pepsi bottle incident that will absolutely be explored in future obituaries. Losing her one-eyed, badass bitch of a daughter devastated Renee, but it also made her quite homeless since Kathy pretty much picked up the tab. A talented and gregarious grifter, Renee Corrin eked out her final years of luxury. She literally retired at 62 under the care, compassion, checking accounts, and evidently unlimited patience of her favorite son and daughter-in-law of world-famous cow sanctuary, El Paso, Texas. I mean, it just goes on. Like, literally so every line is 
It's so, so good. The end, great. too, says, There will be a very disrespectful and totally non-denominational <laughs> memorial on May 10th, 2022, most likely at a bowling alley in Fayetteville. <laughs> the family requests absolutely zero privacy or propriety, none whatsoever, and in fact encourages you to spend some of the government money today on one-armed bandit at a blackjack table or on a cheap cruise to find our inheritance. <laughs> she spent it all, folks. <laughs> Oh, Oh, so great. Like, she just sounds like a woman that I'm sad we don't all know, didn't all know. Like, just great. And so great to have left that, like, fun legacy for her kids to be able to write that, too. Like, so amazing. So amazing. So to segue to the obituary of another woman, I think we both wish we could have talked to and um, met and have been inspired by is Belle Hooks. And... I know you and I pulled different things. So maybe just like as we go mm-hmm. through, just kind of pile on whatever, um, whatever. But for, for people who might not be familiar with her or haven't heard her name before, she is this like towering figure in feminism and was a, like a public intellectual, really, and a writer, poet, activist. And Mickey Kendall, who wrote one of the books that we're going to read for the next season, just wrote a, an essay about her in the Washington Post. I think that posted today. And she said, mm. quote, when a powerhouse like Bell Hooks dies, it is a shock. You know they're human. They tell you that in word and deed, and yet you expect them to live forever. She was an icon whose legacy will outlast her life. She was also a person who ate, drank, told stories, and was, as we all are, sometimes wrong. Um, so I hope we get into a little bit, like, as a feminist icon, you know, not all feminists think the same and not all take the same tack, obviously. Um, but thinking about her work and who she was, I I think would be really great if we just could take a little time to do that today. So she was um, the fourth of seven children born in Kentucky. And her father was a custodian for the postal service. And her mom was a maid in a deeply, deeply segregated city. So her, she was black, family was black and her mom primarily worked as a maid for white families. And so in like a segregated Kentucky in the fifties for a black woman that Mm -hmm. there was this expectation that she'd be like super well-behaved and like know her place and mind her manners. And she was known for being really outspoken and asking a ton of questions. And, um, the part I wanted to make sure that we noted was that she spells her name. She was actually born Gloria Jean Watkins and Mm -hmm. bell hooks was the name of her great grandmother. Is that right? Uh, maternal think. great-grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and that someone, she was like in a candy store or something and she was like, y- you know, speaking her mind as like a little girl and somebody who ostensibly knew her great-grandmother was like, wow, that's Bell Hooks talking. And so she had this idea like, yeah, in o- to honor my grandmother, I want to live out her legacy of outspokenness. And she lowercased the B and the H in Bell Hooks to distinguish her from her great-grandmother like that they that they were yeah. different women. I also like that she said she did it to distinguish herself from mm-hmm. her great grandmother, but also to convey convey that's what most that what was most important was to focus on her works and mm-hmm. not who she was. She said the substance of books, not who I am, mm-hmm. is what she wanted people to focus on, which I Ugh. I love that. I, I love that idea. I love that idea of like not having 
any sort of like ego or self-aggrandizement or self-promotion whatsoever. And maybe it's because I work in medicine where I, and thankfully <laughs> this is not like all people, but you definitely run into those people um, who insist on being called by their title. Like even mm. if you work with them collegial for years, you would never call them by their first name. And if you mm. did, they would correct you and say that mm. they are doctor so-and-so. Mm-hmm. I fucking hate that. <laughs> for anyone out there who insists on being called by your title, rethink that no. long and hard. It's here's an asshole move. Say. Well, just to complicate it a little bit, because this came up actually when the last place I worked as a professor that, yeah, I think especially thinking about like the douchey, I don't, I mean, douchey doctors, maybe that's too strong, but especially like white dude, rich white dudes (laughs) are like, call me such and such that the only time that I actually really appreciate when people demand that is when there are people from marginalized groups that are like, fuck you. I earned this degree. Like, this is what needs to happen. And was interested. Now we're off on a tangent already. Why did we ever think this would be a minisode? <laughs> but but um, the whole conversation we were having as colleagues is that um, for women of color in our department, especially for black women, they felt that, and they were up against a lot of bias from their students. And so we had this like, oh, we want to be warm and open and friendly so students can call me by my first name. But they said for us, the consequence of that is actually connected to legacies of white people calling black people by their first names out of a sign of disrespect. Like mm-hmm. you're not Ms. So-and-so, or you're not Mr. So-and-so, you're boy, or you're, I can, I'm a kid and yeah. I can call you by your first name. I don't have to respect you. So it was tied to these other legacies and that it, they felt like it, it really diminished the respect that, you know, like it fed the disrespect that mm-hmm. students already mm-hmm. had for them mm-hmm. just because of, of racism and mm-hmm, is sexism. Mm-hmm. So that was a concern. And then the other issue was if we just let everybody do what they want, like, well, then you go by doctor and I'll go by Katie, you know, yeah, then it looks yeah. to students like I'm the flexible, cool one and right, they're right. the assholes, which doesn't help anything. So we had this like really interesting conversation about why we would use our titles, but I would prefer that. I mean, I do, I totally respect and appreciate that and voted in favor of using our titles. And at the same time, know that there are people who are doing it coming from a place of privilege and assholery, which I'm guessing is what you're experiencing. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's where, and I think it comes from that level, like on a personal aspect too. I just like the whole, the whole notion of respect is usually very off-putting to me because mm-hmm. because I feel like it's been demanded from people who are already in a place of privilege who did nothing to get there and mm-hmm. demand something that I don't feel like they've earned. Not that mm-hmm. people necessarily haven't earned things through education or whatever, but it's just this entitlement that coming from privileged people that they Mm -hmm. deserve and demand this respect that irritates the shit out of me that therefore I have like, I have less respect for respect in general. (laughs) (laughs) Disrespect, respect. Well, I mean, she, Bell Hooks earned her PhD. So this is actually like a super relevant conversation. She went um, to my alma mater, University of Wisconsin, Madison Mm -hmm. for her master's degree in 1976 um, in English literature and then a doctorate in 1983 from UC Santa Cruz. She wrote her dissertation on novelist Toni Morrison and she talks about how in all of her studies, she also studied 
um, at Stanford, I think for her undergrad degree, that that's when she got yep. involved in the feminist movement. And she would go to these like really cutting edge women's studies classes. And the quote she had that I've got from one of these essays is that she began to feel estranged and alienated from the huge group of white women who were celebrating the power of quote sisterhood in this like 1970s era feminism, yeah. which we've already talked about a little bit with the reproductive rights movement. Um, so she starts, she's like a super literary, literary person, like literature person. She starts writing poems. Um, she starts writing a book as an undergrad, as a 19 year old. And then that's her first mm-hmm. book that gets published anti-woman, black women and feminism. It got published year, like several years after she started writing it, but that's, I, that just blew my mind. Like yeah. 19. Yeah an undergraduate after after also coming from the background that you just talked about of being raised by like these working class people in very segregated um areas and then being in segregated schools until they went through like this very painful integration and then getting to Stanford as an undergrad like just remarkable in so many ways totally remarkable and also like of course that's where brilliance will come from because she's lived all of this you know Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and I thought it was interesting her first book when it came out um was apparently critics were questioning her historical claims uh that about slavery's toll on women, which is just like so, so insulting. Um, mm-hmm. But now this book is considered a, a classic and it um, Publishers Weekly named it as one of the 20 most influential women's books of the last 20 years, which again, like, oh my God, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and just kind of like blew people's mind. And speaking of her lowercase name and wanting her work to stand for itself. I think that's something that people talk a lot about is her writing was always very, very accessible. And she wrote about pop culture and she wrote, you know, she wasn't like an academic who stayed in the ivory tower, like wrote in these like super technical jargony ways. She was always writing in ways that just were super, super, super accessible and talking Mm -hmm. about naming these experiences that women were having. Um, she, this was before the term intersectionality, but she was definitely writing about that in all sorts of powerful ways. Um, she called it an interlocking system of oppression. And she wrote about, um, imperialist white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, something our listeners will be (laughs) familiar with. And then, Mm -hmm. um, she took, we'll talk a lot about this more in our next season, but she took her next book, took Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, which is often held up as like this classic feminist text, she really took it to task because she said, quote, um, Friedan ignored the existence of all non white women and poor white women and said mm-hmm. it remains a useful discussion of the impact of sexist discrimination on a select group of women, but was a case study of narcissism, insensitivity, sentimentality, and self-indulgence. Zing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And she definitely was critiqued as well. Um, that sometimes she was too accessible or like was trying to write for too wide of an audience or, you know, wasn't radical enough or was too radical. Like, you know, the ways that especially yeah, I yeah. think anyone with these intersecting identities, just like there's no winning um, and criticized yeah. too sometimes um, for pop culture, her pop culture critiques. Like she did not like Beyonce's lemonade and critiqued it for being just like a, a great example of capitalism, um, Mm. kind of writing 
the waves of certain things instead of seeing it as an iteration of black feminism and like a really radical, powerful statement. So that, that didn't set right with some people. Um, but otherwise, you know, I think people really, and even the people who didn't like her critique of Beyonce or her pushback on things like still love her and love her work. Um, yeah. but just, you know, sometimes landing in a different conclusion. Um, there was one yeah. story I heard that she was someone who was like full throated support of trans women and mm-hmm. was on a panel with Laverne Cox, who was super appreciative of Bell Hooks's work and talked about how much it had meant to her growing up. And, um, at one point they're on this panel and Laverne Cox, who's the famous actress from Orange is the New Black trans actress and, mm-hmm. um, other, other programs, um, said that she was reflecting on her, the way that she was enacting her femininity. And she asked, am I feeding into the patriarchal gaze with my blonde wig? And apparently bell hooks like immediately replied. Yes. <laughs> Like, <laughs> yes. But I, yes, I think are. like even then, like they seem to really get along and appreciate each other. And so I, you know, th- I thought that was really interesting too, that she's written like over 30 books, poetry. She's written a bunch of children's books um, that I also, I just ordered a bunch for my kids. And I'll talk a little bit about why, why we want people to order her books at the end here. But um, I thought that was really interesting that she, she really, saw pop culture as a super important thing to think critically about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What else I had a have? few quotes that I had looked at online. So our great friend, Kate Schatz had posted <laughs> um, a tribute to her when she learned of her passing about one of the books that she re- first read from her that then influenced her um, throughout the rest of her life. And the book is feminist theory from margin to center. Mm-hmm. Um, and she highlighted a few passages that I think have really, um, they really speak to what we're trying to address and what we're, the education we're trying to do for ourselves and Mm -hmm. to spread to people, um, to get us as white women to look at things differently, to realize the perspective that we look at it from and the privilege that we have as we look at history through the lens of being white women. Um, and this book, she really like hammers home where we as white privileged feminists have missed the mark um, in our histories. And so she said, um, certainly it has been easier for women who do not experience race or class oppression to focus exclusively on gender. Privileged feminists have largely been unable to speak to, with, and for diverse groups of women because they either do not understand fully the interrelatedness of sex, race, class oppression, and class oppression, or refuse to take this interrelatedness seriously. Mm -hmm. By projecting onto Black women a mythical power and strength, white women both promote a false image of themselves as powerless, Mm -hmm. passive victims, and deflect attention away from their aggressiveness, their power— however limited in a white supremacist male dominated state, their willingness to dominate and control others. Mm. Ooh, yeah. that reminds me of a quote I pulled. This is from a 1994 book she wrote called outlaw culture. And she says, it's always puzzled me that women and men who spend a lifetime working to resist and oppose one form of domination can be systematically supporting another. Um, for example, feminist white women who work daily to eradicate sexism, but who have major blind spots when it comes to acknowledging and resisting racism and white supremacist domination of the planet. 
Critically examining these blind spots, I conclude that many of us are motivated to move against domination solely when we feel our self-interest directly threatened. Often then, the longing is not for a collective transformation of society, an end to the politics of dominations, but rather simply for an end to what we feel is hurting us. This is why Mm -hmm. we desperately need an ethic of love to intervene in our self-centered longing for change. Fundamentally, if we are only committed to an improvement in that politic of domination that we feel leads directly to our individual exploitation or oppression, we not only remain attached to the status quo, but act in complicity with it, nurturing and maintaining those very systems of domination until we are all able to accept the interlocking, interdependent nature of systems of domination and recognize specific ways each system is maintained, we will continue to act in ways that undermine our individual quest for freedom and collective liberation struggle. Something I think you've talked a lot about, like we Mm -hmm. can't wait until it's something that hurts us directly. And Mm -hmm. it mentions this ethic of love that she wrote a ton about. That's something that um, people really are grateful for is she theorized a lot, wrote a lot, talked a lot about the importance of love at the root of all justice movements and justice work. Um, so I, I'm rereading one of her books now that's just all about love. And it's literally, that's what it's called, all about love. <laughs> hmm. um, and she said when she started writing it, people said, oh, Belle's gone soft. But she said she kept thinking, they don't get it. It's not about going soft at all. It's about knowing what can save our planet, which is people connecting, communicating, showing love and kindness. Um, there's yeah. just so yeah. much. There's so many things. Yeah. I also, um, r- looked at this quote. She said, is where it's talking about like modern feminism and that idea that white women have had and the focus they've had on it. She said, a central tenet of modern feminism thought has been the assertion that all women are oppressed. This assertion mm-hmm. implies that women share a common lot, that factors like class, race, religion, sexual preference, etc., do not create a diversity of experience that determines the extent to which sexism will be an oppressive force in the lives of individual women. Sexism as a system of domination is institutionalized, but has never determined in an absolute way the fate of all women in society. Being oppressed means the absence of choices. Many women in this society do have choices, inadequate as they are. Therefore, exploitation and discrimination are words that more accurately describe the lot of women collectively in the United States. Mm. So just this, that idea of intersectionality that like there, it, there's not a common experience. There are differences. There are different ways that oppression, um, gets more and more built on by all the intersections that people have in their different identities. And that's really not owned by the feminist. It has not been owned as much by the feminist movement. Um, the way definitely like should be yeah, by white yeah. women in the movement for sure. In general. And she said, um, we knew that there could be no real sisterhood between white women and women of color. If white women were not able to divest of white supremacy, if feminist movement were not fun- fundamentally anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Everything so, from yeah. months and months and months that we've been talking about. There were just yeah. two other pieces I wanted to mention now. I mean, you've said we're going to circle back to bell hooks quite a yeah, bit for in the sure. next season, but um, this so there are two things that I think have to do with when I was thinking through what we're trying to do with this podcast. And so one has to do with her re- like refusing to be like fancy pants or elitist or inaccessible to people. And she was, um, 
or, or like it has to be one way if you're going to be like a serious intellectual or whatever. So she wrote in 1994, this was an interview with Bomb Magazine. She said, to think of certain ways of writing as activism is crucial. What does it matter if we write eloquently about decolonization if it's just white privileged kids reading our eloquent theory about it? Masses of black people suffer from internalized racism. Our intellectual work will never impact their lives if we don't move it out of the academy. And I just thought about like the historian's work that we rely on so much, the public intellectuals work, the racial justice educators work that we pull from, that we're learning from and sharing. Like to me, the part, point of this podcast is to make this learning as open access Accessible. to as many people as mm-hmm. possible. And I, I just really appreciate so much the legacy she leaves behind about saying like, that doesn't mean it's what her work was somehow lesser than because she made it available and accessible. Um, another piece I thought was really amazing. This is just super personal, but she moved back to Kentucky. Um, she was living in New York and her parents were elderly and, you know, getting sick. And so she got a position at Berea college, which I want to learn more about Berea. The little bit I know about it is that students don't pay tuition. It's like totally accessible to kids in poverty, um, in Kentucky. And that she, it really meant a lot to her to live where she grew up and to be really committed to this place that she was super connected to. And, you know, I didn't ever see myself moving back to where we grew up, but I, yeah, that really spoke to me a lot about that connection. Um, yeah. I had one more quote that I thought would be okay. a good one to end up on, but I, what else did you want to yeah, add? Yeah. I, I had just a couple of things too. I wanted to quickly mention the way the, what she died from and why yeah. it's important to, yeah. um, uh, to recognize this too, is that she died from kidney failure. Um, and I, that when I read that, I immediately was remembered like things that I have learned um, in school, I'm sure. But more recently, it has come back up that particular we we know there's so many disparities in healthcare um, for black people and for people um, with less means, but particularly for black people, kidney failure is a very uh, salient issue right now. And it's hopefully this is going to change, but there's some, the, a way that they classify or a way they calculate or we calculate kidney function in medicine is incredibly racist and will hopefully change because of the focus that's been on it right now. But, um, it's basically a rate of how your kidneys filter toxins through your body and that calculation for years since the early 90s has included a multiplier for people um, of African-American descent specifically because your muscle mass has something to do with your kidney function. And there's an, an assumption that black people have higher muscle mass in general than white people do. And therefore, there's a multiplier in this function, in this calculation, if you're black, that sometimes, and probably most of the time, falsely makes black people appear to have better kidney function than they do, because it's assuming that their rates are higher because of their muscle mass. Oh and that, that sounds leads... like something from like 1894. Right. Not, yeah, not the, the studies, yeah, the studies that it's based on, it's like three studies that are incredibly flawed, trying to prove that black people have higher muscle mass, which is just like, fuck? I mean, yeah, exactly. But what it leads to is then falsely thinking that their kidney function is better, which leads to a total delay in care, 
because if they're any like, oh, care, and we know that yeah, the care if is any care too, like to begin with, and then if right. you get there, even they're gonna say, oh no, actually, your kidney function. If you were white, your kidney function would we would consider to be at a level where you'd start needing to get intervention for it. But you're black, and so that's in a normal range oh for our oh racist God. assumptions of what it means to calculate this level. And then it also goes into things like, I think this is is a pop culture reference, um, but Grey's Anatomy just did an episode on it a couple of episodes back this season where it leads to discrimination in transplant lists because your kidney function is one of the things that determines on whether or not you can be on a transplant list. And if theirs is not actually coming up as bad as it is in reality because this calculation is wrong, then they're also discriminated against um, in getting organ transplants. So I don't know her history. I don't know, like, her per- obviously her personal medical history or if she was adequately treated or not. She may have been, but just a pertinent fact to bring up. Um, Thank you for that. In that way. And then the one quote that I wanted to. include on an end going back to you talking about her focus on love i really liked this quote she talks about in the beginning of it like the way that both males and females are silenced in their voices very early on in the societies that we live in um but then she says when men and women punish each other for truth telling we reinforce the notion that lies are better To be loving, we willingly hear the other's truth. And most important, we affirm the value of truth-telling. Lies may make people feel better, but they do not help them to know love. Yeah. So, and I think that also is part of, you know, why we do this and, like, why... I maybe in my own personal life have always been like so adamant about truth speaking, even when some people feel like it may be harsh or mm-hmm. maybe not like the correct thing to say in that moment or maybe more polite if you don't bring certain things up. But I think it's really like if we're not telling the truth and if we're not hearing other people's truth as hard as it may be, then it's not. It isn't a loving stance to take towards people um, when we don't validate the truth and the experience that people have in this country and in the world, really. So I appreciate her her putting that into much better words than I ever could. It's funny that you pulled that quote because this morning, I don't tweet a ton and Twitter stresses me out, but um, in this book that I am rereading, the quote that I pulled out was, um, was this, when I look at my life, searching it for a blueprint that aided me in the process of decolonization of personal and political self-recovery, I know that it was learning the truth about how systems of domination operate that helped learning to look both inward and outward with a critical eye. Awareness is central to the process of love as the practice of freedom. And you talking about um, this idea of of your commitment to truth telling and how even people think that it's harsh, um, it's bad. I'll put a link and maybe we can even put this in the description of the episode. But when I get caught up on the website, I'll link to it for sure. But it was an article in Inc, like inc.com um, mm. just recently 
um, why emotionally intelligent leaders avoid the feedback sandwich, you know, where you like give someone a compliment and then you sneak in something that's like a little harder to hear. And then you give them another compliment Mm. and just why that's so bad and how the loving honesty of saying like, I, I, because I care about you, I need you to know this truth because I believe in you and I know you can do better. Like, like couching it, not in fake blow sunshine up your assness, but couching it in like critical love for you and love for the community. Like we, you know, we need you to know this truth and we need you to do something with it that really resonated with me. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally here for her connection with truth telling to love. I mean, I don't know how else you, I don't know how else you are in love, like in a loving relationship that's healthy without loving honesty. It doesn't mean you have to be a dick. Like you look ugly today, you know, but it's like just that letting reality be the center of your relationship. I just don't know how else it works. And there has to be, there has to be a trust in that relationship for that to work, Mm -hmm. that you are looking out for the other person's best interest. So I think that that, Mm -hmm. that also plays into it. And that maybe in our white privilegedness we have to recognize that in talking to other groups that we have historically and or personally marginalized that maybe mm-hmm. that trust isn't there to do mm-hmm. that on that level mm-hmm. um not abuse it in that level but especially in the idea of speaking truth to power i mm-hmm. think that that's mm-hmm. always an important stance to take so Totally. Anyway, totally. bell hooks. Bell hooks. Well, the last, um, yeah. I wanted to do a shout out here. The last um, bit of the essay from Mickey Kendall says, and I thought this was so appropriate for our podcast too. She said, it's easy to look at our heroes retroactively and only see the best about them, but the things they got wrong can also teach us where we can do better, where we can set aside our biases and respond to the person in front of us as a fellow human. As hooks herself said, for me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? And I think that's mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. we're trying to do here. They, um, yep. The obituary that ran in Essence magazine said that contributions can be sent on Bell Hook's behalf to the Christian County Literacy Council or the Museum of Historic Hopkinsville, Christian County, um, which is where she's from in Kentucky. So we can add those links if people want to support that. But more than anything, I think a really great way to support her right now is to get her books and read them and share them. This is um, for many people, a gift giving time of year. And she wrote absolutely fabulous children's books, like board books for toddlers and books Mm -hmm. for older kids, picture books, and then really, really beautiful books that again, aren't intended for like professor nerds. They're intended for everybody to read and they're really, really beautiful. So if you haven't read Hooks's work or you know children in your life that you would want exposed to messages of love and justice, then check her books out and get them out there. Get them, get them spread through your network. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, we will post repost other episodes on another week, but um, (laughs) I'm glad that we could meet up and talk really quick about this. Well, and as we're encouraging everyone to get these beautiful books, we need to also honor Renee Mandel Corin and go bowling and use some 
like, <laughs> you know, salty language and That's maybe right. even like run a couple scams. I don't know. <laughs> Do something uh. wild. Roll yourself a joint if you're in a state where that's legal. (laughs) It sounds great. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So we'll link to both of those um, in the episode. But just thanks, everybody. And, you know, be well. Love, love, love to everybody. And, you know, have a a great couple weeks. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.